I'm Jo Langton and I'm talking to Louise Marshall and the first thing I want to ask you Louise is um, how does it feel to have finally handed in your thesis? Hi Jo, it's nice to be here, thank you. I'm in this strange limbo zone. Having handed it in a couple of weeks ago, I'm waiting for my viva to be sorted out now. And I'm missing my thesis terribly. I keep finding new texts that I want to put in to it. I'm trying not to look at the document itself too much because the other day I did open it in a great big flashing purple neon typo leapt out at me with strobe lights <laughs> attached and so I had to shut it very quickly <laughs> and go for a long walk but it's exciting on the one hand it's you know it's a bit like leaving school you know you're mournful for this structure that you're leaving and I think that technique was fantastic in creating a cohort of students and getting us together several times several times a year and I really, really enjoyed that um, that comradeship. Now I'm post-techni. I know that I, I've made new friends. There are loads of people I will continue to be in contact with, but I don't really know what's coming next, and that's a bit nerve-wracking. I suppose after this huge kind of intense involvement mm. with this subject, do you, you feel a bit bereft or very excited about the future? Or both? All mixed up, yeah. totally all mixed up. My, my research concentrated on five composers who I chose not only for the excellence and the brilliance of their, of their work and their working methods, but I was also very much aware that they'd been underrepresented in the, in the history books and the musicological canon. And there are various reasons for that, and that's certainly what part of the thesis is about. But what has come out of that is that I feel that I've forge strong connections with these composers. These will carry me forward. I mean, for example, Anaya Lockwood, who's based in America for the past 40 years or so, there are already plans afoot about how we can work together, how I can contribute texts to very, um, a programme of events that's happening in Sweden for next year, for example, and then um, working with one of my other technical colleagues about being part of a plan to bring her over to do concerts in London next year. So that's exciting. This is all, you know, a different way of working for me. And that's, that's you know, a fantastic opportunity. I like that. Brilliant. What was the biggest challenge that your thesis gave you? The biggest challenge? It's, well, I think there are many challenges. I'd been out of full-time education for a long time. And I was worried that that might mean that I just didn't have the muscle. That was a needless anxiety. I'd been in journalism for many years before that, and it's, which is a research, is a research of a different time. In practical terms, there was a work-life balance. We've got a school-age son, and one had to be there for family things as well. If I'd been 25 when I did this, I could have just, you know, pulled all-nighters and gone to concerts whenever I wanted. I couldn't do that, you know, it's a different way of working. You know, that's not a negative, it's just the way life works. The biggest challenge in terms of the research was that I was very aware of the age of the composers I'm focusing on. I chose a group of five composers that were meant to be indicative of a range of different types of working but also I was really aware of the urgency of the research of 
getting their testimony done, you know, before it was impossible to get their testimony done. And, you know, Pauline Oliveros, I did interview, but she died a few months after that. Eliane Gadig, who's the oldest of the five I work with, is in her mid-80s now, and still going strong, but... One's aware of that. One's aware that one's up against, up, up against, against time. time. Exactly. Mm. And I was very much aware as I did this research that other people were dying outside of it. So Pierre Henri died, mm. for example, and um, Elsa Marie Prada died, um, died. I think it was in two thousand and fourteen or yeah, fifteen at the beginning yeah. of the research. Yeah. I'd I'd sort I'd I'd sort of thought about. Um, uh, Involving, involving um, Elsie Parda, but she died. Yeah, I couldn't get mm. there. Mm. So there is that that mm. pressure. And what, what were the most joyous moments? I guess you've met lots of people in the course of your research. What what was one particularly I found, epiphanous moment? Well, I should say that in a way, having the privilege of time talking to these composers, my composers, was always joyous. Mm. I was always very moved at how pleased they were that a researcher had come looking for them. And that was wonderful for me. I felt also that I had a great um, responsibility to represent them and help to get their names out there. And that continues. But when a meeting goes well, and you sort of hit this happy medium almost, and you're talking about your ideas about sound and music with the composer who has their own ideas, and you find a mutual way of talking. It's just, you know, it's fireworks, it's It's brilliant, it's fantastic, it's magical, yes. So yours is a practice-based thesis, Yes. Um, So I'm wondering how techne and epistine came together or fought with each other in your work it came together in a totally unexpected way actually the practice nature of my research was to do with interviewing and that's what I did I conducted in-depth interviews with these composers and I drew from various theories you know oral history psychoanalysis feminism as a way of analysing these interviews and the narratives that people gave me. But at the beginning, I thought that the PhD was about one thing. Well, maybe about several things, but chief amongst them was the working methods of this group of women and how they had to take strategic paths to get to a place where they could compose and that they could work. And that's what I thought the um, the PhD was about until I think nearly the end of my first year. And then I did this interview with Eliane Rudig. I went to Paris, I met her for the first time in the flesh. And then I realized that actually what I was writing about was the sonic encounter. And so this was, an, I, I think, you know, maybe this is a good example of how the practice, the technique, the craft, leads in very nicely to the episteme. 
because in terms of thinking about the sonic encounter, I had to pull in bits of theory from other places that I hadn't thought about it before, but also actually to synthesize it myself and, and come out with new ideas about how this theory might articulate this sonic encounter. In my research, I, I, I talk about the sonic artifact and I talk about what the sound holds in, in an encounter and this idea of the sonic artifact happens in a third space between the narrator on the one hand and the interviewer on the other hand. It's a very, very um, episteme-informed space. I should say at this point that I first met Louise or heard about you when I was just beginning to think about my PhD and my supervisor told me about you and my heart mm. sank because I thought, oh no, here's mm. this woman who's a really experienced journalist and she's doing exactly what I'm doing and how is that ever going to work? Um, and it is true, even hearing you mm. speak now, it sounds like we're doing exactly the same thing. And yet the interesting not, not. thing is that, mm. that it's such a completely different mm. thing. And also Techne had the, the kind of insight to see how different they were, which to me is very interesting. Well, I yeah. first heard of you before I started my PhD. I was aware of your radiophonic women mm. piece that you'd written. I was always aware that we were interested in the same kind of people, but we had a totally different approach. You're much more, com you have a much greater knowledge of composition and the technology that goes into composition. Mm. I don't have that depth of knowledge. In fact, <laughs> your depth of knowledge has helped me on lots of occasions oh, and my, my, my thesis, so yeah. thank you. Thank yeah, you so on that, record for that. We've, we've mm. ended up supporting each other, yeah. which, is, which has been really great. Mm. And I've also interviewed the four composers. You've got five composers. Yeah. So, that them. so we do have this body mm. of work and knowledge about these composers. Yeah. It's funny that we should both be a bit worried about how we might over overlap, but when you think about it, the past 50, 70 years of experimental music is incredibly rich. And in terms of the women involved... In this scene there's been very very little research there's you working on it there's me there's Frances Morgan who's doing her PhD with the RCM Science Museum they're very and, and there are various ac other academics interested in aspects yeah, yeah Hannah Bosma in, in, in she's in Holland isn't mm, she mm. or Sats at the RCA is mm. is interested various people at goldsmiths and at the London College of Communication, where where I am. But it's a rich, fertile area. There's so many ways one can approach it. And this is the wildly exciting thing. You know, you can write about Delia Derbyshire. I could write about Delia Derbyshire. But the things are going to be wildly different. Absolutely, mm. yeah. And that's great. And, and that's you know, happened, as a, yeah. as a object of inquiry, of research, you know, she's strong enough to hold that. Mm. And that's wonderful. Mm. We both in interviewed Eliane. Yeah. Um, we came out with completely different yeah. interviews. So I was very focused on Eliane, tell me about the technology. And mm. she kept saying, I hate the technics. Why do you keep asking me about the technics? Yes. You know, and that the technics was only ever a means to an end mm. for her. Um, whereas I think your interview was much more about her, her life and her approach to music. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I was interested in how she thought I was interested in how she deconstructed sound 
I, I should explain that Eliane Rudig's electronic work in particular, the work that she made on an analogue synthesizer for many years, was very, very slowed down. And you had to listen to it very carefully to hear the transitions in it. She would filter the frequencies of the sounds she was working at to accentuate and to make these transitions flow. People might say it was drone work. I mean, I, I, she I, doesn't like that. I, does I, she? I, but yeah. she doesn't like it. And I understand. I mean, the thing about a drone is actually it's a very rich harmonic structure, mm. but I think that's not generally understood. But she would filter the frequencies of the sounds she was working at to, to accentuate and to make these transitions flow. The transition of human consciousness or post post death as it flows through the bardo, but it's always but her music is always about transition of energy from one state to the next. She's also been a practicing Tibetan Buddhist since the mid seventies, and so one of the things that I wanted to ask her about was how she squared her interest in Tibetan metaphysics and practice with her work in composition and sound because I was aware that all the composers I was dealing with in their own separate ways had had very um, profound encounters with Buddhism mm. and meditation. And I was curious. I was just curious. No one's picked it up before. Uh, Same with um, Beatrice Ferreira, mm. um, who's very into Zen med meditation. Yeah. Um, that's a very interesting angle. Does that come out in your thesis? <laughs> It, I wanted to, and I wanted to put it in, and then other things swung in. Other things swung in. It's one of the things that I've got on the side, mm. as a, another thing. I mean, people have written about John Cage and Zen mm. forever, mm. but Tibetan Buddhism and music less so. Mm. It's, it's, it's about energetics. It's extraordinary. It's. She slows stuff down to sound, sound down to such a degree that you almost sort of feel that you're talk, thinking about a material, materialistic transcendentalism. You can almost see the little patters of electrons on the tape. Her practice was incredibly time-consuming because if ever she made a mistake, yeah. and if it was a two-hour piece at one hour, one hour fifty-eight, she went back, to, back the to the beginning. Absolute perfectionist. Yeah. Thank you very much, Louise. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. <laughs>